Chapter Twenty of the Dawn of Medieval Europe, four seventy six to nine eighteen by J. H. B. Masterman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Alcuin and the Revival of Learning, John Scotus in the sixth and seventh centuries learning in europe was reduced to a very low ebb schools were rare and the church authorities had already begun to frown on secular studies as corrupting to the student in the early part of the seventh century isidore bishop of seville had a high reputation for learning he was a voluminous writer and his books formed the textbooks for students in the schools of western europe till the tenth century but there is little in them of real value and after his death in six thirty six no great man of learning appears in western europe till the coming of alcuin while however the study of the great writers of the ancient world decayed on the continent it began in ireland where the coming of christianity was accompanied by a great literary revival the irish or scots as they were called by contemporary chroniclers became not only messengers of christianity but also of culture till the norse invasions of the eighth century ireland remained a home of literature and of students from ireland the lamp of learning was passed on to the neighbouring island england also received educational stimulus from another source for theodore of tarsus sent from rome to organize the church in england brought with him hadrian abbot of st peter's rome under whom a flourishing school began at canterbury under his influence an englishman benedict biscop founded a great library at wearmouth in northumbria where the influence of the northern missionaries was still strong at malmesbury also a scottish teacher maelduff set up a school which grew and flourished but it was at jarrow a daughter house of the monastery of wearmouth that english learning found its greatest representative in the scholar whom later ages have loved to call the venerable bede born in six seventy three bede spent his whole life at the monastery of jarrow while attentive to the rules of my order and the service of the church my constant pleasure lay in learning teaching or writing bede had nothing of the hostility toward secular learning that we find in gregory the great and other church leaders on the continent he loved virgil and the other latin poets and was familiar with plato and aristotle his life was spent in teaching and writing crowds of students flocked to him and over forty works remained after his death to attest his literary activity on his death in seven thirty five the educational centre of england shifted to york where egbert the bishop afterwards archbishop developed the school that wilfred had founded northumbria remained the most important centre of learning in western europe till the danish invasions destroyed its prosperity and peace but before this the revival of learning had passed from northumbria to the court of charles the great the earliest men of learning to arrive at the frankish court were scots from ireland 
and they were followed by alcuin alcuin or albinus as he called himself was a northumbrian by birth and had been brought up in egbert's school at york where he became the favourite pupil of the archbishop ethelbert who succeeded egbert as headmaster of the school used alcuin on various confidential missions one of which brought him to the court of charles the great about the year seven seventy three on this occasion he was apparently sent on by charles to rome on some business in which he was concerned when ethelbert succeeded as archbishop alcuin became practically head of the school and on the retirement of the archbishop he was sent to rome for the pall for his successor eanbald on the way he met charles at parma and received a pressing invitation to return with him to francia he returned home to obtain leave of absence from the archbishop and then settled down in the dominions of charles which he never quitted again except for a short visit of two years to northumbria from seven ninety one to seven ninety two at the frankish court he became head of the palace school and practically minister of education the palace school originally established in the days of the merovingian kings for the education of the king's sons and the sons of the nobles of the court was developed by charles into a kind of court university of learned men whom he gathered from all parts he himself attended lectures with his sons and succeeded in learning latin and greek but charles also desired to extend education throughout his realm and in a famous capitulary of seven eighty seven he ordered the establishment of schools in connection with every monastery in his kingdom in the organization of these schools and in providing textbooks for them alcuin took a leading part he was endowed by the king with the revenues of the monastery of st lupus at troyes and bethlehem at ferrieres he also took a leading share in the theological controversies of the time it was the outbreak of the adoptionist heresy that brought him back from england in seven ninety two and at the council of frankfurt he was the leading champion of orthodoxy how large a share he had in the events that led to the coronation of charles in eight hundred we do not know but some expressions in his letters to the king suggest that the restoration of the imperial office in the west had been discussed between them after seven ninety two he settled at the great monastery of st martin at tours of which he became abbot and where he spent the rest of his life carrying on a constant correspondence with charles and other friends at the court the learned men of the court were apparently a merry crew they bandied jests and exchanged riddles and adopt for epistolary purposes the names of classical and biblical characters thus charles becomes david alcuin flaccus albinus angelbert homer and the king's daughters and friends appear similarly disguised the king himself entered with zest into the battle of wits and loved to perplex his learned men with conundrums several other scholars joined the court at about the same time as alcuin peter of pisa who had formerly taught at pavia came to francia about seven eighty already an old man and taught grammar there till his death some years later a more notable man reached aachen a little later in paul the deacon the historian of the lombards 
he came to the court to plead for his brother who had been imprisoned and his property confiscated for his share in some lombard rising he became a special favourite with the king and stayed at the court for a good many years finally retiring to monte cassino where he died another literary colleague of alcuin was einhardt or Egenhardt, who was educated at the monastery of fulda and came to the frankish court as a young man he became a close friend of the king who employed him in various important public works his skill in all manner of metalwork earned him the nickname in the court circle of bezalil about the year eight twenty six he and his wife parted to enter religious houses and einhardt retired to the monastery of seligenstadt where he died about eight forty part of einhardt's work appears to have been superintending the compilation of the official annals of the reign but the literary work by which he is now chiefly remembered is his life of charles the great the de vita caroli magni is modelled on suetonius's life of augustus and is of course warmly eulogistic but there is no reason to doubt the substantial accuracy of the picture presented to us of the king and his court as einhardt knew both from personal experience though the ultimate aim of the education given in the palace and monastic schools was the study of theology alcuin did not discourage the liberal arts and the attitude of the roman authorities toward these grew more favourable but toward the end of his life alcuin seems to have felt some fear lest the study of classical literature might take too prominent a place in the educational system one of the most important services that charles and alcuin did for sound learning was the collecting and copying of the texts of the classical authors many of these had been copied and recopied by ignorant clerks till they had become almost unintelligible the texts were now revised by competent scholars and then copied in the scriptoria of the monasteries in the beautiful roman characters that now superseded the clumsy uncial letters the text of the holy scriptures and the service books of the church were also carefully revised and in the last year of charles's life we read of him as correcting with the assistance of certain learned greeks and syrians the four gospels of jesus christ strenuous efforts were made to encourage sound learning in the monasteries and cathedral schools in a letter to the archbishop of mainz charles writes you are striving by god's help to conquer souls and yet you are not anxious to instruct your clergy in letters at which i cannot be too astonished you see on all sides those who have submitted to your rule plunged in the darkness of ignorance and you leave them in their blindness in a kind of imperial rescript addressed to the bishops and abbots of his realm he says we have thought fit that in all bishoprics and monasteries entrusted by christ's grace to our government care should be taken not only to live regularly and in conformity with holy religion but also to study letters seriously and to teach and to learn each man according to his ability and by the help of god so that the religious rule of life which brings with it honourable conduct and zeal for teaching and learning may give regularity and beauty to language efforts were also made to improve the services of the church and in seven eighty six charles brought singers from italy to metz and soissons 
where they taught the Gregorian method of chanting to Frankish clerks. One important result of this literary energy was to restore Latin, which was deteriorating in northern Europe into an almost unintelligible jargon, once more to the level of a literary language. The Latin prose and verse of Angobert and Alcuin is often crude and ungrammatical, but it is an immense improvement on the scanty fragments that we have left from the previous period. Though the mass of the laymen remained unaffected by this literary revival and could generally neither read nor write, the standard of the education of the clergy was undoubtedly raised and never again sank as low as it had done in the seventh and eighth centuries. The monastic schools established at this time went on through the dark century that followed, and though the confusion and contests of the time precluded further progress, the ground won through the efforts of Charles and his literary helpers was never actually lost. Only one thinker of the first rank bridges the gulf that separates Alcuin from the Renaissance of the eleventh century. John Scotus Erigena was born just at the time of Alcuin's death. He was apparently a native of Ireland, but of the details of his life very little is known. All that is certain is that he came to the court of Charles the Bald about the year 847, and remained for some years at Paris, where he is said to have presided over the school. Paris was at this time rising into importance as a political and literary centre, partly through its nearness to the great monastery and church of Saint-Denis, which was the burial place of the West Frankish kings. One of John's earliest tasks was to translate into Latin a Greek treatise, supposed to have been written by Dionysius the Areopagite, the Saint-Denis, who was associated in legend with the first preaching of the gospel in Gaul. Mr. Poole calls John the last representative of the Greek spirit in the West. His writings, of which the most important is a philosophical dialogue called De De Visione Naturae, show a speculative mind, bold even to rashness, and little disposed to accept the dogma of authority. His opinions were pronounced heterodox even in his lifetime, and after his death his name became the battle-cry of theological contest. He has been described as the founder of medieval scholasticism, but it would probably be more correct to regard scholasticism as a reaction from his dangerous speculative activity. He is said, in later traditions, to have lived on terms of close relationship with Charles the Bald, much as Alcuin had done with his great predecessor, and to have returned to England after the death of his patron in 877. According to one legend, he became head of the school at Malmesbury, and was murdered by his scholars. But it is much more likely that he died in France soon after 877. Hinkmar of Reims, though primarily an ecclesiastical statesman and administrator, ought perhaps to find a place besides John Scotus in the records of the ninth century. Born in 806, he became a favorite adviser of Louis the Pious, and on his death was taken into favor by Charles the Bald, who appointed him in 844 as Archbishop of the Great See of Reims. For nearly forty years Hinkmar ruled as primate of the church in West Francia, 
the adviser and friend of a series of carolingian monarchs with whom he corresponded on familiar terms he was jealous in maintaining the rights of his order and did a great deal to strengthen the position of the church in west francia in the literary world he is chiefly known as the author of two treatises on predestination written in connection with a controversy in which he became involved with a monk called gottschalk who was supported by the archbishop of lyon the ecclesiastical head of southern gaul john scotus had already at hincmar's request endeavoured to controvert the heresies of gottschalk but in the opinion of the orthodox had promulgated more heresies than he disproved hincmar died in december eight eighty two at epernay whither he had fled from a norse attack on reims End of chapter twenty